Over the past 25 years or so, genetically modified traits have dominated the seed industry of crops like corn, soy, and cotton. The success of these traits has primarily been in helping farmers with weed and insect pest management. There's never been a seed technology company that makes traits that is not a chemical company. So you can imagine that underneath the roof of a chemical company, the use cases are going to be all around supplementing chemistry. But what if we could use this technology to code the plant's DNA so that it actually communicates to the farmer immediately when it's stressed and what type of stress it's encountering? That's the question that drives Shelly Aronoff and her team at Interplant. Does a farmer want to apply a fungicide where there's no fungus? No, absolutely not, right? The reason they do it is for risk mitigation. So it happens to be the best scenario is that you find things early, do something very specifically and avoid the additional harm to the environment and the ecosystem. The Interplant technology recodes a plant's DNA so that when it encounters a specific type of stress, it creates a protein in the leaf. That protein can be seen immediately using a device like satellite imagery or on an iPhone so that the farmer can respond accordingly. In the future, the plants are going to be communicating the stress. Instead of having someone recommend what it is that you need to do, the plants will tell you what you need to do. We dive deeper on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hammerich, and every week I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, as you just heard there in the intro this week, we're exploring this concept of engineering a plant to provide signals of stress, things like pest pressure or disease pressure or nutrient deficiency. Interplant is a company that's developing traits that serve as biosensors for when each of these unique types of stresses occur. This can be then monitored via satellite for early detection and hopefully swift and precise action on the part of the farmer. Interplant founder and CEO Shelly Aronoff is joining us here for today's show. And when I say us, I mean not only you, dear listener, and myself, but also my co-host for today's episode, Amy Wu. Amy is the author of From Farms to Incubators, Women Innovators Revolutionizing How Our Food is Grown. Her and I teamed up earlier this year to produce some episodes together featuring women in ag tech. This is now the third of those episodes following Joanne Zhang in episode 263 and Ponzi Travis Favette in episode 273. I would definitely encourage you to purchase a copy of Amy's book, as not only does it include Joanne and Ponzi, but also several other former guests of this podcast, people like Pam Marone and Fatima Kaplan, Sarah Nolette, Mariana Vasconcelos, Christine Sue, and several others. So joining Amy and I today is Shelly Aronoff. Shelly grew up in Israel and came to the United States to get her MBA at Stanford, where she chose entrepreneurship as her focus. After founding a couple of ventures, including a hummus company, she was inspired by some work her father-in-law was doing with biosensors, and that eventually led her to founding Interplant in 2018. Now, you'll notice from listening to this show, I don't often feature companies that are so early they don't yet have a commercialized offering. Uh, but that is the case today, and when Amy brought up the idea, this concept of finding ways to communicate with plants was just too enticing for me to pass up. You're going to hear a lot about how this process works, why it could lead to significant improvements in management of these stressors, what it's like to be a female ag tech founder not from an ag background, and why farmers are paying already to be a part of this several months before there's even a product available for them. First, though, Shelly takes us back to the genesis of what is now Interplant. 
started by wanting to work on food waste. That was something that I felt if I can find a solution for this problem, that would be such an amazing thing to do. But the more I looked into it, and a lot of the food waste actually happens, not in the field, but throughout the supply chain, people's home. And I felt that that is going to be a really tough problem to solve for because it's a behavioral change. You need to now convince people to buy differently, use differently, view food differently. And that's a challenge that I'm not saying that is unsolvable, but it's going to be way harder to create that change because it's, it's a behavioral change for humans. And around the same time, thinking about different ideas, my father-in-law, who's a professor at Tel Aviv University, came to visit us in the barrier and he told me that he figured out how to communicate with plants. So that's really the moment that inner plant was born. Interestingly enough, what he figured out was a very novel way to make a biosensor. And as I was looking into it and really starting to dive into inner plant and my co-founder, Rod Kumimoto, joined me, who's a molecular biologist that has been making biosensors for 25 years. We understood that there is actual older ways that are more mature scientifically and better for commercial aspects. And that was a lot of the journey, which was just talking to farmers. I'm an outsider to the industry, so I didn't come with any of the preconceptions that people have about ag. I also didn't have all of the knowledge about what farmers needed, so I went and talked to a lot of farmers. And the messages were so crisp and clear around make my operations easier, I don't want to change the way I work, it needs to be affordable, scalable. So we designed the technology around that initial concept to fit their needs. Can you explain a bit about how it works? And what is the exact problem that solves? Maybe explain it to me as if like, you know, I have no background. (laughs) So the way it works is that the plants have an immune system reaction that's activated on the emergence of stress. So basically, because plants are immobile, they can't move, they have to protect themselves. And what they do is that when they're being attacked, they know how to create in the biological level to protect themselves. And we call this promoters, but these are essentially temporary changes in the plant's RNA. So what's nice is that the plant reacts differently depending on the stress. So it's going to react one way to insect biting it and a different way to fungus and a third way to nitrogen deficiency and so on. And that it happens really fast. The plants start reacting within hours of the emergence of stress. So what we do is we go and we recode the plant's DNA so that when they're reacting to that stress, they're also going to be generating a protein in their leaves. And the nice thing about the protein is that it creates an optical signal that is easy to collect. So we as people won't be able to see it because it's invisible, but through optical equipment, we can see the signals from as far as satellite imagery and as close as an iPhone in the field. And the reason that this is important is because I think the number one problem we need to solve currently is the lack of knowledge, let's call it in the field. So we spend a lot of time with farmers and there's a lot of risk mitigation that happens because they just don't know. And the cost of doing nothing can be your entire field sometimes or a huge amount of your yields. So what we're trying to do is bring the knowledge directly from the source of truth, which is the plant, so that farmers don't ever have to go and say, let's just apply a fungicide because I don't know and I don't want to take the risk of something being out there. And by the time I see it, it's already too late. Instead, the plants will just give them that information And when they find things at an early stage, they can go and do precise applications to treat them and prevent additional losses, minimize the amount of chemistry that they use, but also increase their yield potential. Can you explain a little bit more, Shelley, about the genetically modified aspect you said? I mean, basically, 
why again did you choose the products or rather the plants that you did like soy and cotton and how does that connect again with the genetically modified aspect? So the reason we chose those crops and the reason we chose all the three is that they're all genetically engineered, right? So a crop that's genetically engineered in the U.S., for example, or really globally, though, about 95% of that crop is going to be GMO, which means they already have traits in them and the cost structure and everything around those seeds is already very well defined. Our goal is to innovate on two fronts. One is to provide a new novel trait. And again, this is probably something that most people don't know. There's only two traits genetic traits that have ever been commercialized. One is herbicide tolerance and the other one is Bt. And there's variations of those, but you know, one bucket. One gives you clean fields without weeds, that's herbicide tolerance. The other one gives you clean fields without insects, that's Bt. And over time, as these traits have become more and more used, they actually work less. So I believe we're at a paradigm shift where these old traits are probably not going to serve us much longer. But there's never been a seed technology company that makes traits that is not a chemical company, right? Because Monsanto figured out Roundup Ready or herbicide tolerances by accident, I believe, or at least that's the story that's been told, commercialized it as part of essentially their pesticide effort. And then everyone else that got into this business, Dow DuPont, now Cortiva, Syngenta, BSF, these are all chemical companies. So you can imagine that underneath the roof of a chemical company, the use cases are going to be all around supplementing chemistry, not seed technology. But this technology is incredibly powerful. So there's many things you can do with it that have nothing to do with resistance and herbicide tolerance and coupling with chemistry. And that's the direction we're going, which is can we offer farmers something that will help them farm, make their life easier, reduce risk, and also help them become more sustainable and reduce their impact on soils, increase biodiversity and so on through knowledge versus through resistance and chemistry. Right. Very cool. And I understand, so your first products are cotton and soybeans for fungus and for insects. Could you maybe walk us through an example of like, maybe with fungus would be a good one of like, how does this change the way the farmer approaches managing that fungus as far as what's the old way versus what's the interplant way? I love that question, Tim. So a couple of weeks ago, we're in Iowa visiting a few of our farmers And what was interesting, not to me, actually to a friend that's been in the industry for 30 years, is that I told him, you know, a lot of the farmers in Iowa right now are applying two, three times a season fungicide. And he was saying, what? Fungicide in Iowa? That's not the way things are done, right? But they weren't done this way before, Tim. They're done this way now. So what we're seeing in the industry is that there is a huge movement towards more pesticides. You know, when asked them, why are you doing this? They're saying, well, you know, by the time we can see a problem, it's too late. We have to be ahead of it. And my chemical consultant tells me, just go and apply. Really, like you do this a couple of times, the cost is low and you can be safe to know that your fields are safe. Right. So there's not going to be any fungus erupting. There's not going to be a lot of yield loss happening. That's where we are today. And that's what we're trying to change. So in the future, the plants are going to be communicating the stress. Instead of having someone recommend what it is that you need to do, the plants will tell you what you need to do. And the way I perceive this, it's not so much about patient zero. It's not about finding the plant that got infected, right? And diseases move together. It's more about finding the first acres that are being impacted by fungus pressure. And then deciding over the next few days, when are you going to go and precisely apply 
fungicides. And by precisely, I mean not entire fields, but just the areas that are impacted by the disease and then prevent that additional yield loss. So instead of having the fungus continue to grow through the fields, you're just going to contain it in that first area and prevent the additional yield loss. That's really the goal, preventing a lot of prophylactic applications. Right. What gives that farmer the confidence that they won't have to go back the next week to other acres they didn't spot treat the first time? That's a good question. And my answer to you is that time, right? The way I view data traits like ours is that every year they're going to be more valuable than the year before, which is the opposite of what resistance traits were, right? The first year you had the best product and then every year it actually got worse because of evolution. For us, every year is going to be better. So the more data we can collect and if the farmers help us anecdotally tell us what was the fungus, and what was the you know, result at the end of the year, and then we integrate it into tractor solutions. So we have other data sources to supplement the plant data. We're going to start giving them that confidence year after year and we'll have better predictions of what's happening based on weather to make sure that they don't get into bad situations they want to avoid. So my guess is that the first few years are going to be on the lower end. Farmers are going to still kind of test it. They fundamentally believe that the plants hold all the knowledge, but it's going to take them a moment to really say, okay, I'm just going to risk everything and just do what the system is telling me. But as they start seeing the results, they're going to see the diagnostics. They'll probably collect tissue samples. They'll use this as scouting tools because they really don't have enough resources to do everything all the time, right? So just having a better way to know where to go and what to do is already something that you want to utilize in year one. And then over the years, they're going to trust it more and more, and the data will become more compelling so they can make more advanced decisions. Gotcha. Yeah. And help me understand, how much earlier can a plant tell us through your gene versus like if you had spore traps or pest traps out there, how much earlier is a farmer going to be able to make a decision than if they use the latest in like the spore catching technology, for example? There's basically two answers to this question. One is the kind of lab biological answer, which is the plants react within hours. How fast until you catch it in the field? Not hours, right? Because there's going to be a specific amount of plants that have to be infected. You need to get some imagery, something scalable like satellites. So there's going to be a lag of a few days and so on. But I think the real answer is that today we do not find things. And I do challenge any company that says I can find the problem in a scalable, affordable way that fits into farmers' operations. Because if it was all those things, then farmers would be using it. Yet instead, what they're doing is going and applying fungicide prophylactically because they don't want to risk anything. And, you know, a lot of the farmers are looking at growing their operation. A lot of the farmers that we're talking to are saying, okay, I've got 15,000 acres. I want 20 because I'm incredibly efficient and great at what I do. And I want to scale. And that means that my fields are going to be further apart and I'm going to have less opportunities to see what's going on there. And then it's more prophylactic sprays. So I think the key is that we're just not doing that well today and that a lot of the solutions that are out there are a little bit misguided because if it's not scalable, if it doesn't come in a very essentially ubiquitous way to the farmer, then it's not going to be used. And that's the reason that I forgot to mention this, but our first solution or the first idea that we came up with had a little clips on the leaf. And it took me one visit to a large farm to say, this is never going to work. Are you kidding me? There's 120,000 soybeans in an acre of soybeans. Where are the clips is going to go, right? And that's how we ended up with satellite imagery. You know, I also, uh, Shelley, read somewhere that your company is developing sensors. Let's talk about, you know, that aspect as well. So for growers can track 
data from the tractors or the vehicles that they use? Can you talk a little bit about where you are with that? What we want to do is create a new data set that never existed, which is the plant data set. And I like to refer to it as making the invisible visible, right? The things that we can see, because what we can see is weeds. And that's the reason that it's, we use the most herbicide. It's the thing that's most visible. We want to look at other problems like fungus or very tiny insects or nitrogen deficiency, things that you can't see and make them visible. So the data set in the seeds is what we're developing. And then we want to make the data collection ubiquitous. Because in my ideal world, the smart seeds, quote unquote, which is what we're creating, will have as many partners working with them to create as much value as possible for the farmers. So this has been, especially in the last six months, I would say really changed or directed where we want to go in our commercialization approach and our business development. And the direction we're heading is to work with partners, both on satellite imagery, and we're talking to one satellite company and we're starting conversation with others. Tractors, again, similar situation. And then input providers, basically anyone that could benefit from the data and then provide that benefit to the farmers we want to integrate into our world. Now we're gonna work with them to design sensors, for example, but the sensors are not complicated. It's literally a spectrometer and a filter. What's important is that we get the infrastructure in place, we get them motivated to want to be part of this ecosystem and then create a new system to help farmers farm more sustainably. Because I don't believe it's gonna be one thing, right? We all need to come on board and make different decisions based on better data in order to create this new reality. That was great. The satellite imagery, what I know, because I, I deal a little bit with, you know, satellite ET for irrigation, uh, evapotranspiration for irrigation. And I know part of the problem is the satellite data only comes once every once in a while. You don't get it in real time. Is it different with imagery? Is it kind of like real time imagery or is it like, oh, this happened last week and now I'm kind of finding out about it? You know, Tim, that's a great question. It's one that we were wondering about because it's not going to come every day. Right? Even if you work with the smaller constellations, some days are going to be cloudy. We're talking probably a couple of images a week. But what's interesting is that when you talk to farmers and you ask them how much imagery do they want, they don't want an image a day. It's actually too much, right? The reality is that you need some planning time. If you're going to go out to the field and do something, you're probably not going to do it because you got an image in the morning and go out in the afternoon, right? There's going to be some planning in advance. So I think that the right answer, even long term, is going to be a couple of images a week and just having the confidence that you're getting the right data, because the problem is not getting imagery. The problem is that the imagery is not very valuable if what it's telling you is that there are chlorophyll changes or biomass reduction, right? General detection of late stress. Once we get into future, future generations, then maybe there's going to be an image a day. Maybe the tractors will be swarms of independent tractors that can go and collect data. I think there's a lot of opportunities in the next generation of all of this. But right now, we're just going from where we're today to slightly better. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about the farmers and also your inspiration you know, is starting the inner circle. I understand that this is a group or an association, right, for farmers. Can you share a little bit about what inspired you and what this group is about? Yeah, of course. So inner circle is a farmer's community that we launched earlier this year, end of August. And the idea was we've always been collecting feedback from farmers, but we wanted to institutionalize that. We wanted to create a community where farmers have a very direct way to communicate with us. So they're coming on board, 
And we currently have, I believe, 70 members and we're starting to talk again to farmers now post-harvest. And the idea is for them to be part of the definition and design of these future traits. So anything from the level of detection, the resolution of the imagery, what stresses they're interested in, and it varies between crops and so on, what germplasm, because we want to make seed technology, not seeds. So that means that we're working with partners to get the traits into germplasm and distribution and so on. But what's nice is that as we started working on this community and getting the farmers on board, there's so many other things that started to come up. So now we're doing town halls. A lot of it is informative in a sense, similar to what FBN did about, about the germplasm or the lack of diversity of. We're doing the same thing for traits because a lot of farmers have been told very different things about what traits are and how many are out there and what's the cost of developing and taking them to market and the gross margins. And we want to help them understand that the status quo with seed technology should not continue. It's actually technologically not as challenging as it sounds, and it's time for more competition to come up and help them. So this is the kind of things we're trying to work with our farmers and continue to grow this community to get more and more, especially of the farmers that want to influence the future, right? The early adopters, the innovators that want to have a say into the technology that's delivered to them. Awesome. And your inner circle, what's in it for them? Why are they wanting to be a part of this? And I don't mean that in a critical way, just like I'm curious, what's in their mind that they're like, yeah, I want to join this inner circle? Honestly, I get this question all the time. It's always tough because people ask me, and they do, they pay, by the way, it's an annual subscription, uh, similar to FBN, $500 a year, because we want to make sure that they actually want to be part of this and asking them to pay in advance is, is a good way to make sure they're going to participate. Two answers. One is they like exciting new things, right? Farmers are always ahead of the curve. They are inundated with things, right? Every time I drive with a farmer on a tractor, he tells me about or a hundred people calling him a day and offering something that doesn't sound great. So when they find something that they see real potentially, they want to invest some time there with the hope of being part of that future. And I think the other part is I'm not very shy about my wanting to change the industry and create competition. I speak about this often and I'm very honest about it. And I think they like that. They're tired of having to pay more and get less every year and being between two oligopolies that control the future all the time. So that's part of what we're bringing them is this vision of a path that is technologically driven with people that want to create change and building an ecosystem that can actually deliver on that change to open up the industry and create a better financial solution for them. Can you talk more about how this gets commercialized? You've talked a lot about farmers, but they're probably going to purchase your product through, I would guess, a seed company partner. So what are the steps to kind of getting there to have this commercially available for farmers? Right. So the first thing you need is germplasm. But in a sense, you have to bring all the partners together at the same time is what we learned. The first approach was let's just get the germplasm providers on first. Because when we get access to a germplasm or the seed, then we take that and we talk to the independent seed distributors. Then we talk to the farmers, we talk to you know whatever, John Deere's and satellite companies and so on. But everyone wants to see someone else come on board. So what we ended up doing is talking to everyone and it really ignited the process. So that's the steps. Like basically, we're bringing independent seed companies on board. These are the distributors. And we're bringing the germplasm providers so we get access to seeds. Because again, we want to sell the trade, not the entire seed, and be part of that tech, tech stack. And then we're bringing the farmers on board and the rest of the partners because that creates some of the enthusiasm and excitement. For example, a germplasm company to believe that it's valuable to work with us and bring this into their germplasm. 
Right. And what's the timeline for this to be commercially available? So about 30 months until we start selling to the first Inner Circle members. I can share that we have a couple of germplasm companies on board. I can't share who yet, but we're working on getting more and more partners on that lens. And we have some seed companies, independent seed companies, and we're talking to more. We really like the approach of working with these companies that are you know, laser focused on providing farmers innovation and better customer service. With commercializing this, you not only need to validate it with farmers that, yes, it works, you need to set up economic thresholds for, okay, you've got the presence of this pest or this disease, but at this threshold, you actually need to do something about it. How do you do that? Right. So this is still in the works, but what I believe is going to happen is that it's about collecting imagery over time and then seeing the spread of the disease over a certain area. Because Realistically, no farmer is going to go out and apply a fungicide over an acre. It's just too small, right? But as you start to see it spread, and depending on the frequency and the speed of the spread, that's really the recommendation that we're going to give the farmers. If things are evolving really rapidly, then the recommendation is going to be high to go and and spread fungicides and prevent additional spread. If you're getting an image and then another image a couple of days later, and the disease is essentially contained for whatever reason, then maybe the recommendation is to wait for the next image, right? So that's very likely how it's going to go. It's not so much about the individual infection as much as it's the movement in the field. Okay. Yeah. And so to test all of that, is that happening with the inner circle? Are they currently testing this or is it being tested at the field scale somewhere else? Or how are you collecting that imagery and that data so that in 30 months you're ready to open up the floodgates? So we are still doing things in a small scale. And then we're going to start testing on satellites just to see signals, not so much signals that are activated by stress. The first farmers that are going to get the system are going to test it with us based on successful results in small field trials, not on large field trials. And I know that that is not the way things are usually done, but in startup world, when you need to move fast, that's part of the ask that we're making with farmers is to test it with us. And that's how we can move as fast and efficiently as possible. Just do different pieces in parallel instead of doing things staggered. Yeah. I'm going to switch a little bit to our conversation and just wanting to get your insight a bit about the topic of investment and fundraising, especially in this growing area of agri-food tech. And I'll just say that basically in talking with a lot of different kind of founders, you know, especially in the ag tech arena, there's this broad brush of it's still challenging to get funding in this particular sector particularly maybe for women founders. So, but you recently, your company recently landed funding, you know, around 5.6 million. So congratulations on that. I mean, what's your take on this? Are there challenges in funding, in attaining funding, you know, in the sector and why or why not? And I guess the follow-up question would be, talk a little about how you landed that funding. It's interesting. I've been thinking about this all weekend because I am fundraising again in January and it's going to be a larger amount. I do think it's harder for women is kind of where I landed in all this. And the reason that I perceive it's harder for women is because, and I might be wrong, but I do get the feeling that it's easier for people to see men dream big than women. And at the end of the day, to do what we're doing, you have to dream really, really large. And there's something that I I hope that people understand about venture capital is how venture capital works, right? Because sometimes I have founders that reach out and they tell me, I want to build a business, you know, Best case scenario, we'll get to 50 million in revenues a year. And that should be enough, right? But it's not, not for a VC model. So VCs, 
for people that don't know, out of their entire portfolio, two companies are going to return the entire fund. And those companies have to essentially not 10x the fund, but 30, 40, 50x to compensate for the rest. So we're talking about billion dollar companies with hundreds of millions in revenues. And for that, you have to dream really large. I've been really lucky to find amazing investors that I don't think they see me as a woman or see me as anything except for a founder and just love the vision and they love the energy that we brought into it. But I do think that I've, I've gotten a lot of questions over the years of, are people going to join your vision? There's so many moving parts, right? Are you going to convince them? And I was just reflecting on this because we just got a proposal from a satellite company that's interested in creating a payload for us. And that was the moment when I thought, wow, they're coming, you know, they're actually coming. And we haven't raised that much money in comparison to a lot of other companies. And we've been really frugal to accomplish what we needed to accomplish, which is maybe the benefit of being a female founder is that you're probably working with less resources. And that means you're incredibly resource efficient and less diluted. But yeah, I do think that when a female founder goes out to fundraise, she needs to anticipate that there's going to be more questions about the near future versus the big vision, which are not the right questions, not in, in VC. And that you have to bring to the table probably twice what you thought you did, right? If you're saying partners are going to come, go and get them because they're not going to give you the money to go and get them. But when you bring them, it's going to be clear that your vision is going to be executed. And I mean, on the same lines, how important do you think it is to have some sort of like farming or agricultural background to get into ag tech? So I'll probably have a slightly controversial answer to this. And I think this is true to a lot of industries, by the way, is that you don't want to be too much of an insider. Growing up in an industry, many times, not everyone, many times believe that what has happened so far is the reality, right? So the first few years of Interplant, what I heard all the time is, only Monsanto can make genetic traits. Only Monsanto can take them to market. Only Monsanto has germplasm and so on and so forth and endlessly. And I remember thinking, this just doesn't seem right. You know, Monsanto doesn't exist anymore at this point. Plus, all of the people that work there for years have gone out to the market and they're looking for the next opportunity. And that was, a, I think, a huge advantage. So, and there's a lot of people, I think, Mark Andreessen, a lot of different uh, kind of famous venture capitalists that have wrote about this, that you need an outsider's point of view sometimes to not get slowed down by the status quo. And then from there, do find mentors. We've had just an incredible amount of advisors and mentors that come from the industry that really helped me understand some of the problems and how to solve them and how to approach them. You don't want to be blindsided and definitely not be arrogant. So you got to figure out what you don't know and study the space. I do think it helps to have a fresh perspective. What uh, excites you about this current phase in the ag agri-food tech industry in the next phase? So what excites me is that I see the end of resistance traits. And I think everyone should be seeing it. And a lot of people are, but they want to look aside. You know, I like to talk about the equation of herbicide tolerance. So when farmers got herbicide tolerance the first time, Right. Let's say soybeans, 1996, herbicide tolerance, Roundup Ready. The trade cost 450 an acre. They had to apply only glyphosate probably twice a season, and they had clean fields, no weeds. Now, fast forward 25 years. There's three-way herbicide tolerances, right? So every seed could resist three herbicides. Farmers apply 15x the amount of chemistry in herbicides, and there's so many varieties of resistant weeds, and specifically the whole family of weeds that is becoming a massive problem for farmers and it's just not going away because they're all creating resistances and tolerances. 
So to me, it's clear that this path is over because the cost equation is failing and farmers are going to choose a different path. That opens up a ton of opportunity because it really opens up the entire industry that was technically and I think almost completely controlled by the need for that one trait, the herbicide tolerance family. And this is going to be the whole driver for a new ag system. And how might Interplant help them you know, get off of the herbicide tolerant treadmill? I understand the spot spraying on pests and funguses, but with herbicides, where does that come in? So I don't see any direct way uh, with herbicides. My only hope for herbicides when it comes to inner plant is uh, something that one of our inner circle farmers told us that stuck with me, which is he was saying, every time I go out to the field, I see stress, crops that are stress, and then I see weeds. It's the first visible thing I see. So I immediately think the weeds are the problem. Let's go and kill them, right? Hopefully we can prevent some of that because if you know what the stress was and the stress happens to be nitrogen deficiency for corn or fungus or whatever it is, then you don't have to go and apply the herbicide and you can maintain some of the biodiversity that the weeds bring into the field and just save on that additional pesticide spray. So that's kind of the best way that I see us helping there. I think that herbicide tolerances are going away for no reason whatsoever, except for they don't work, right? So if you ask me what technologies are going to replace them, I think John Deere with the acquisition of Blue River have basically started in motion the next generation. And the reason that they'll succeed with sea spray and spot killing of weeds is because herbicide tolerances do not work and because herbicides are not working well. And there's no new mode of actions and there's so many resistant weeds that unless there's a massive change in the way that herbicides are produced and delivered, that system has failed. And that means that every other option is going to be a viable option, even if it's slightly harder initially, because maybe the tractors we've seen spray are going to be slightly slower. No one wants to hear that, but it's the reality, right? It's the reality that it's better than having a ton of herbicides in your fields and still having weeds. And the point you make, though, about seeing stress, assuming it's a weed pressure problem. It's a really important point independent of weeds here, because what you're doing is not just signaling that the plant is stressed. You are signaling precisely what that stress is, right? Even if it might look to the naked eye, the pest stress, fungus stress, nematode stress might all look the same, the naked eye. But with your trait, it's very specific to one particular type of stress. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly. So those were the two critical components that farmers told us that they needed the technology for detection. It has to be really early before the damage has happened, and it has to be specific because general stress could be one of a hundred things. So what are you going to do, right? And that's how our system works. So we have different optical signals for different problems, two or even three from satellites. And if we look at, for example, adding something to sand spray, which hopefully one day will happen, then more detections when you're close by. And that's where a place for nutrient deficiencies can come in really well. If you're looking for nitrogen deficiency or phosphorus deficiency, it's actually much nicer to look at it plant by plant from the tractor than on a large scale from a satellite. So different tools suit different problems. How many different colors can you have? I think on the biological level, six or seven is kind of where it gets a little bit much. But if we get to six and seven, I'd be really happy, right? Right now, our goal is we have two and we're hoping for three as the next generation. Okay, very cool. Well, I know I'm at time, but the last two minutes here, anything I didn't get a chance to ask you that uh, you think is important to mention? Tim, I think you guys did a great job and asked a lot of the right questions. I just hope that the conversations that we can spark and if people want to reach out to me, I'm really always happy to talk about 
the next iteration of ag and what it means to move away from the old system into a new system. So the one thing I guess I, I would like to add is that everyone has to come on board, right? We like to talk about there's three elements to the future of ag. One is better detection. Two is better products. And three is better applications. And if you don't have all those three elements working, then you're only moving the needle slightly. But if you can imagine having better products that are designed based on better data, so they're more specific and get them to market faster and cheaper, then you think about drone applications or small tractors or things that are going to be more precise, that's when the whole system flourishes. So I just hope that people start to think as an ecosystem of collaboration instead of competition, so we can really design a whole new system and not just work within what we have today to make it slightly better. Well, very interesting stuff. Thank you so much to Shelly Aronoff for joining us here on today's show. You can learn more about their work at innerplant.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-P-L-A-N-T.com. Thanks as well to Amy Wu for co-hosting. Make sure you pick up her book, From Farms to Incubators, at bookshop.org or wherever books are sold. If you're listening to this episode around the time it's being published, I want to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'm incredibly grateful for the community that has formed around this podcast and uh, really looking forward to what 2022 has in store for all of us. Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Innovation.